to go back to this idea of surveillance, it's a one-sided intimacy. Mm. They think they're having a private moment, but the film viewer is complicit with this unearned proximity to what's transpiring between them. Hmm. As we learn throughout the film, you can analyze and analyze and analyze and replay and still be completely wrong about what it is that you're hearing. Completely wrong. to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'd like to throw it right back. I know, I know. It's like, I never really get to hear how you are, are, until we're a few exchanges <laughs> in. So how are you, are you? I am looking very much forward to a, a little mini vacation coming up uh, in a few days and where are you going what are you doing uh we just go down to this little place a couple hours away um by the beach we had our brief heat wave uh of like a day this is the bright wall dark room weather segment and now it's back to overcast so uh so yeah, it, it's just more a chance to get away. It's a place we used to go with the kids when they were younger. And uh, oh. we didn't do a lot of traveling the last couple of years because of the pandemic stuff. So obviously, yeah. So yeah, we're going to we're gonna head down. Just It's just really short. Yeah, I was going to say the dates, but then that would that would give up that uh, we're recording this a month earlier. So oh, cut, well, we cut should. that, cut we that part just, out. No, we can say that, can't we? I don't know. I don't think we need to pretend that it's July. Okay. It is not, in fact, July. This is the July episode, and it is June. <laughs> it is the very, very end of June. It is the very, very end of June. I will be gone for all of July. I am leaving tomorrow. Wow. I know. I just sent an email to my landlord with detailed plant care instructions. Ooh. What does that even entail? It's honestly not anything because I am not a green thumb myself. Okay, me neither. It's literally just like, could you do the bare minimum that I myself would probably forget to do Mm -hmm. um, and just give them a drink all like seven or something of my plants once a week or so. Well, hopefully they'll be okay without you. I hope so. (laughs) I'm more concerned with her having full rain in my apartment while I'm gone. I mean, she's not a listener to the podcast, I don't think, so I think it's okay for me to say this. (laughs) <laughs> what if she sends Harry Collin to bug the place oh, while you're gone? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it looks really crazy in there when I get back, I'll know what happened. It's been a couple weeks or months, I should say, since we jumped to the very end of a film at the top of the podcast. Yeah. I will say when I rewatched today's film, I, as a lifelong renter, was truly horrified by the final scene and the imagery of the apartment and the state that it's in. So we'll get to that, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, This is the earliest we've ever mentioned the final moment. So new record. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I wanted to break some records today. And it's a film we're both uh, pretty familiar with, too, as opposed to something I had just seen for the first time or you'd seen for the first time in like 15 years or something like that. So Totally. Very special episode. Yeah. Not only is it a July episode that we're recording not in July, but we don't have a guest today. No guest, but on choice, not not because we couldn't find (laughs) one. (laughs) Yeah, last week. We asked everybody. Nobody would come in. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just us. 
yeah. an intimate bright wall episode about a great movie so it's going to be a lot of fun our theme this month is voyeur do you want to say a little bit about that yeah sure i mean we're, we decided to put together an issue called voyeur kind of in general with the the concept of film in and of itself kind of being a voyeuristic medium obviously mm-hmm. we had some great submissions we have some great essays lined up kind of all over the map. We didn't get one on the film uh, for this month, so that's why I wanted to make sure we did it for the podcast because I think it's very, very apt for the theme. And yeah, just looking throughout, you know, interviews, I I read an interview with with Ingmar Bergman last night where he just just said straight, I am a voyeur. You know, he said he'd like to make a film with, he obviously never made it, but uh, in the 70s he was saying that him and, and Sven, his cinematographer, we're trying to figure out a way to do a movie that is just one close-up of a face for the whole movie. Mm. And he said that that would just be high drama to him and stuff like that. Mm. So most of us are curious people. And, uh, you know, voyeur can be described in many different ways from benign to curious to criminal. So um, lots and lots of movies fit the bill. And uh, so we, we thought it was a good theme for the month and, and looking forward to uh, seeing how the issue comes out. I guess it's good that we have Andy Warhol's blowjob to make up for this <laughs> lost Bergman project. So if we need to look at a face for a yeah. really long time and imagine what's going on outside the frame. I have not seen that one. Well, it's probably not good for family movie night, but you could throw it on some other yeah, time. So. I probably won't, but... <laughs> um, so our film is The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola, 1974. Should I do our little synopsis? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Harry Call, a privacy-obsessed San Francisco surveillance technician, played by Gene Hackman, progressively loses it after a recording reveals a possible murder. It's Antonioni's blow-up with sound instead of photography. We hear the tapes in question over and over and eventually learn that Harry's anxiety springs largely from a traumatic past experience when his surveillance expertise resulted in a man and his family being rather gruesomely killed over possibly leaked information. Once again, he finds himself caught between delivering the captured intel or protecting those implicated, and in the process is moved from the margin to the center of this conspiracy. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well set up. <laughs> Thank you. I love writing them. <laughs> yeah, I love hearing them. So where should we start with this one? Because I know that, yeah, we're, like I mentioned, we're both very familiar with the film. But I think you mentioned to me that you've, you've actually taught this film before. Yeah, I've taught it a bunch. It is often taught for film sound. Yeah. Or like sort of introduction to films analysis type courses yeah that's when i first saw it is it (laughs) yeah i saw it in a film class back in my undergrad tell me about that i had switched majors somewhere in the middle of college so let's say Mm. beginning of junior year or rather added another major so i was doing english lit stuff and and creative writing and then moved it over to a just fledgling beginning cinema studies program at the university of washington so there's you know all the classes were with the same kind of group of like the 20 or 30 of us uh, a few different professors that were great one who's still there and all of the 10 films we watched for that that kind of intro to film class um from one of the kind of first semesters of that they were all fantastic in the same way that, that the conversation is but just totally opened my mind i mean i was into movies but i was into mm. you know Pulp Fiction and, and uh, you know, maybe if I knew anything old, it was more like The Graduate or Nashville or something like that. Mm. So seeing this one, I mean, I remember just being curious because I knew obviously about The Godfather, which I hadn't seen still at that point. Mm. So I actually saw the conversation before any of Coppola's bigger films. When I saw this one uh, in that film school, I just remember being riveted. Like even, even for good movies, sometimes I drift away if it's in a classroom setting. Mm. And this one was just right from that first shot, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, was just, I was immediately just pulled so, so deeply into it. And really was the first 
well, one of the first times, at least in my memory, that I thought about the construction of a film as a put together thing. You know, uh, I mean, obviously I'd had general ideas about what a director did or what an editor did, but this one really forces you to kind of pay attention to a lot of different things while also just being a very riveting story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the twist. At, at the time, I thought, this is the greatest twist I've ever seen. You know, with the audio, I don't know what we want to say without spoiling it all, but the change in context of, a, of a, an important line. I was just like, oh, wow, you know, my mind was blown. So I was I was fascinated with it for many years. I probably would have put it in my top 10 through most of my 20s. It's mm. maybe a little outside of that now, but it's it's still, you know, rewatching it again last night. I was just amazed by how well it holds up, how, how good it is on just every kind of craft and technical level, mm. as well as being a fantastic just movie that you don't need to know any of that stuff about and can just watch and get sucked into. I think it's high art and also just really good. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of text to teach because for introductory students, you I think as you're saying, you don't need to know anything beyond a kind of anecdotal expertise with film as a medium mm-hmm. to understand that there's multiple tracks of information at work. Yeah. So there's what's going on in the story, the characterization. I love Hackman's performance as Harry Call. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, I love thinking about him saying later that that was one of the hardest roles that he's performed because mm-hmm. he was this kind of outgoing, yeah. gregarious, yeah. kind of charismatic guy and to sort of rein all that in and play this like Catholic repressed, privacy obsessed, paranoid guy who is sort of like uncool is really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that, but then there's also everything that's going on with the sound, with, as you're saying, the cinematography from that like iconic oh God, yeah. bird's eye shot of Union Square that opens the film, immediately telling you that this is a film where paying attention on all these sensory levels with thinking about the story, but also really watching what's going on on screen, the way the camera selects things for your attention, the movements mm-hmm. that the camera emulates. Yeah. All that stuff is there to sort of notice and talk about and in a way where you don't need a bunch of background knowledge to pick up on it yeah to pick up on it its importance to the storytelling i very much agree and i think that uh hackman said he couldn't really identify with the character at all so it was harder to play yeah also i read later said it was one of his what he thought was one of his best performances ever Mm -hmm. but also coppola himself had the same problem and said he could not identify with this character at all Mm. and that that was a totally new thing for him as a director Mm. and as a writer because he normally starts with character and tries to move and build the story through the character. But on this one, he started with the concept, and he hadn't really done that before. He was honestly worried that it was just too boring, that Harry Call was too boring of a character. And so he was adding in things like, you know, some of the things that he says, like in that dream sequence, which I'm sure we'll get to too, mm-hmm. the stuff that Harry Call is saying, then Coppola said, that just came from my own childhood, my own past, because I wanted to find some way to try and identify with this character. Mm. So it's just interesting to think about how the character was fairly impenetrable to both of them. Emotionally, they couldn't connect with him, but still made this really fascinating character study in the middle of a voyeuristic, uh, I don't know, crime, crime drama. I don't know what you'd call the genre. Thriller? It's kind of a thriller, but I mean, there is something... I think boring yeah like fundamentally boring about this film and I don't mean it (laughs) in a derogatory way oh no I understand yeah it's just there's so much silence Mm -hmm. so much strategic use of silence that I think as a viewer I'm not totally used to even now and it's easy to let my attention sort of drift away and that produces some really suspenseful and Mm -hmm. terrifying moments particularly toward the end of the film as like the action is kind of building up But yeah, because we have so little sort of access to Harry's interiority throughout the film, 
and this impenetrability that you're describing Mm -hmm. is so essential to his character like not only is that a facet of how oh yeah they were encountering harry call as a character but that becomes critical to how we experience harry call as a character yeah, exactly you know okay. it's just like we're hitting walls and that's really interesting ultimately mm-hmm. even if we never quite see what's inside and what we do see is just how he gets punished for his vulnerability and yeah, you know poor harry <laughs> Like the one moment where he sort of like lets his guard down to this Matahari and is yeah. totally screwed over. Yeah, it's so drenched in guilt the whole film uh, and, and just obsessiveness. And, yeah. And to the boring fact, I mean, there's a lot of repetition. You know, I could, I could see. Yeah. I'm sure in that film class that I was in, there was half of us that were very much into it. And then there's probably half people that would be like, they just keep playing the same scene and dialogue over and over again. This is boring. I know. I know. Yeah. Because we're just hearing the tapes over and over. And repetition was the key. Yeah. Yeah. And you become somewhat obsessed. I mean, it, it feels very much like feeling what it's like to be in a kind of an obsessive ruminative, ruminative spiral of some sort, only it's with mm. external tapes and thoughts instead of, you know, inside his head. Probably as I'm thinking about it, one of the, the best films I've ever seen it capturing that just kind of like loop that you can't get out of yeah as he just keeps kind of boring into deeper and deeper and without a ton of contextual information so it's mm-hmm. it's really that his projections are guesses about what's going on it's interesting to me that we would pick this film for voyeur I understand that it's like an essential bit of coverage and I definitely don't disagree with that but as I was re-watching it this morning I was thinking um, is this really about voyeurism or is it about paranoia and surveillance? Sure. Which are yeah. related, but not totally like synonymous topics. Good point. And something I really love is that we see that Harry Call from the very beginning when he's introduced to us as like on the phone with, is it like his landlady or his building manager or something? Yeah, I'm not sure. But she's clearly entered the house and he has a sense that she's gone through his mail, mm. all things that... <laughs> I too am paranoid about. Yeah. yeah. And he's right. And so there's a sense that he's paranoid, but that he's right. Yes. And this is something that I think a lot about, like increasingly, mm-hmm. about like data security. Yeah. And just how much personal information we are supplying constantly. All the time. Like yeah. every time you run a credit card and something wants your phone number and suddenly you're getting text messages from related businesses about deals that you don't give a fuck about, you know, and yeah. all the ways in which personal information is circulating unbeknownst to us in potentially really frightening ways. Mm. This isn't really an issue for many people, but for people who worry about or in positions to worry about stalking or, you know, different seizures of information, it's incredibly difficult. Or even just identity theft, yeah. Yeah, it's really difficult to prevent people to be sort of fully off grid. And I love that the film sort of seems to be highlighting but validating Mm -hmm. Harry's paranoia because he knows as a privacy expert he knows how easy it is to understand people's personal matters yeah that's really fascinating to you could make this film where he's just a paranoid person and and he's wrong about all this stuff but he's not often wrong about the things he's paranoid about at least in this film Mm -hmm. uh i mean he gets the main (laughs) the main thing that he's worried about happening external to him completely wrong Mm -hmm. but i've talked to security people that work on like back-end stuff for tech companies or whatever and they have to be paranoid like as part of their job uh, function because it helps them be better at that job and so there's just a lot around the type of person who's both drawn to that work but again with harry it also feels like there's some personal 
he gets very overly invested in you know one you know from having dreams about her to just all kinds of things that just seem like beyond just you know doing his job mm -hmm. and also how he keeps saying throughout the film a few different times you know he just does the tapes he just does the work he doesn't listen to him but of course like that's so clearly not true so his defense mechanisms are just so you know dialed up to 11 at all times around the fact that this doesn't affect him but it so clearly affects him mm -hmm. and just watching him grapple with that and then all of that just insane amount of you know, like I'm saying guilt and yes. feels like a very, you know, Catholic film in lots of very ways. Very Catholic film. Yeah, I mean, I guess they have an actual confession scene in it with an unseen priest. So yeah, I'm curious to talk about that as well, because it just feels drenched in this personal guilt. And, and I don't know where that comes from, if that's from Coppola or if that's just, you know, he just thought it was an interesting character. Yeah, it totally comes from Coppola yeah. and the background with Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I read that he had called the sacrament of confession one of the earliest forms of the invasion of privacy. Oh, yeah. Right? Which as like a young person person who went to Sunday school and <laughs> had to do confession <laughs> with priests um, when I was in my early teens. I think that is really resonant yeah. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> with sort of having to examine one's conscience, as they say, and uh, produce all this really private information for the possibility of absolution. Yeah. It's a huge part of the film. And I love, again, this is a moment from the very end, but when Harry is going through his apartment and wondering where the bug is, mm -hmm. because he's been alerted to the fact that he is being listened to at the end of the film, yeah. there's a moment of hesitation when he's sort of scrutinizing all these objects on his bookcase and he pauses at the Virgin Mary statuette. Yeah. And, like, yeah. <laughs> and it cuts away and there's this contemplation, am I going to break this too and search it for technology mm -hmm. no i'm not yeah. and then we cut back to it and he does in fact do it it's like the last thing he does yeah. it is and it's a shocking image actually to see i wondered about how production created or manipulated <laughs> the statuette i was wondering what it was even made out of because it looks like glass yeah because it looks quite soft yeah oh i thought it looked like glass from a well farm. once it's opened oh okay. yeah I yeah it looks like rubbery it's just or like something. a ceramic or something but yeah it yeah. does it looks rubbery he kind of like splits it open yeah and there's the this kind of like opened Virgin Mary in his hands. Yeah. It's a really like disturbing image and it feels like it's part of this category of stuff in the film that's just a little bit surreal. That's a good way to say it. You know, like the dream sequence, yeah. the way things play out once he is at the hotel where he's anticipating this violent action is going to take place that he mm -hmm. has sort of like overheard the circumstances for. Oh God. All of that feels like we leave naturalism a little bit. Yes. And we're in this kind of exaggerated... It feels like a nightmare. It does, 100%. <laughs> yeah. The last 20 minutes... It, we, exactly. Last month we talked about... The last 20 minutes kind of shifting in, in I Am Love. This is a very different kind of shift. Yes. Not towards catharsis at all. Right. <laughs> and not towards any type of happy ending. But yeah, and I did read last night, I had not known this, that Coppola had originally written and planned for that dream thing to be at the end of the movie, mm. which would have been interesting. But mm. man, I think I love how it ends so much now with that image of him. But still just the idea that he just he's like, I wanted some scene in there when he was basically talking to her about hey you don't know me but i know you mm -hmm. what was that deposit last night the way he like grabbed his face when he heard the scream from the thing it was like oh my like that moment of oh my god whatever i was trying to prevent has now happened again you know plus being like reactivated from his past tragedy that he went through or you know like his worst moment he just grabs his head and he ah it was it was hard to even watch this time around for me 
I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah, that, that nightmarish aspect, um, while also the whole plot becomes clear to us as viewers. So it's a painful last 20 minutes if you're at all wired towards anxiety or obsessiveness. So The scene that feels really key to this turn that comes a bit earlier to me is the party scene. Yeah. This scene that happens when Harry attends a kind of professional conference and he runs into some of his like fellow surveillance expert wiretap buddies yeah his wiretap crew um who are kind of like the competition i love the vibe in that conference which is kind of like everyone's eyeballing each other and harry i mean it's pretty badass that he's like no no i make my own equipment (laughs) like he doesn't even want to (laughs) like sample or be photographed like he won't do spawn con with like other people's microphones or whatever because he's like no i build all my own stuff so at the end of that he kind of explodes out of the conference with william bernie moran who's like the guy in detroit Mm -hmm. played by alan garfield who is needling him as a kind of like friendly rivalry type yeah of... keeps saying you're the best fascinating little dynamic there like he says that he's the best but he really thinks he's the best obviously or wants to be well or is jealous of the success i, I do think he genuinely thinks he is the, that harry call is better but it's so it's one of those things where you run up against the fact that no matter how hard you work or try there's always someone a little bit better <laughs> yeah yeah there's this competitive dynamic for sure Um, And then there's a couple of women and they all go to Harry's office, question mark, like, which is basically this big industrial loft space that's full of equipment, but also seems to have a kitchen and clearly something like a bed inside of it, (laughs) though it's not his apartment, importantly. So they're in this industrial space. It's my favorite scene or really sequence in the film. Really? Yeah, because we learn about what happened with Harry back in New York which is he managed to pull off this kind of impossible seeming job. And the intel that was produced by that accomplishment seems like it led to the sort of super grisly murder of this accountant and his wife and their kid or kids. Mm -hmm. And Bernie is kind of asking him, like, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? Which begins as a kind of, I'm so impressed by you. How did you do it? Mm -hmm. And then kind of slides insidiously into this, like, and you know what happened, right, yeah. to everybody else who doesn't know the sort of backstory. Yeah, and you see him use his defense mechanisms there right away to say, hey, I just I just dropped off the tapes. Right. People do with the tapes what they want or something like that, which you know he doesn't feel. You know that's his defense is just saying, like, stay away, stay away. I don't want to look at this. Yeah, that's the moment when we finally understand yeah. why he's obsessing over what he overhears in the first scene so much, which yes. is... This couple, a man and a woman, walking around Union Square. Oh, we should mention the first scene, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And he overhears a whole series of bits of an exchange that they have as they're making their way through the crowd. And the line in question is, he'd kill us if he had the chance. Mm -hmm. And the, as you said, and as there's a great video of Walter Murch kind of describing the process for there's a change in the intonation between he'd kill us if he had the chance and he'd kill us if he had the chance. So that's the sort of like big turn of the film, right? Anyway, so we're wondering why he's so worried about this. Is Why is he so affected to this woman, Anne, that he sees mm-hmm. and now thinks might be in danger? And then this is the scene that unlocks that. But the other thing that happens here is he has this like 
really sad encounter with this woman, Meredith, played by Elizabeth McRae. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who is Meredith? Is she just like a groupie? I couldn't figure it out. A surveillance expert groupie? I love the <laughs> idea that there are women just hanging around at this conference. Like, what are the wiretap guys yeah. doing tonight? And, and obviously, we find out that she's yes. sort of a spy plant herself and has been sent there to steal the tapes. God, that's so devastating. But there's a lot of really cool imagery, I think, mm-hmm. in this scene and particularly when they move into this like other part of the loft which is quite empty and it's just lit by those incandescent blue lamps and then has like these pillars peppered throughout the space there's enough room for them to like ride and by them i mean other party goers like ride a vespa scooter through the space oh yeah (laughs) but it just looks like this big dance where they're the last two people there or something you know like like phantom thread at new year's or something like that (laughs) ah good call it's so beautiful to me and i there's a lot of moments like that in the rewatches where i feel like i'm seeing this really aesthetic hand at work Hmm. that is doing something beyond just teasing out the sort of suspense aspect of the thriller part of the movie and is is doing something a little bit more compositional yeah absolutely and i was just thinking as you were talking about that that scene specifically as a turning point whatever you called it to move it towards the conclusion um that is a really good thing because it's also and i i don't remember this moment sticking out in my mind in any way until rewatching it this week but uh just the intense uh and this is a lot to do with hackman's performance um just kind of change on the dime emotion like when he realizes that he's jokingly being bugged himself by that was it a pen that they put in his pocket or something? Yeah, a pen. And then he hears this super vulnerable conversation. He has it. It doesn't sound like anyone's paying attention to how horribly like exposing that conversation is, but he right. knows what's on there and no one's trying to stop the tape from playing. Right. And just that look on his face and then that just turn to anger of, you know, get out of here. And you could say it seems like a tipping point into the paranoia of like, you know, hey, I can be bugged too. And this whole, it really ramps up the, the paranoic aspect at that point. And I just found that really hard to watch too. Just again, I, I think I over-identified with Harry more so this time because there was something else too and I don't know if this quite connects that repetition of those lines there's a few lines that go throughout the film from the initial recording Mm. that's made in the opening scene and I know this is specifically about a person laying on a bench in the park but she when she says you know what I see when I look at somebody like that and you know and then she says that great like line that just kind of breaks your heart which I you know do remember carrying around in my head for many years after seeing it that anytime she sees people in these kind of destitute positions that she just thinks this was once somebody's baby boy mm-hmm. that the way that Coppola kind of keeps playing that mm-hmm. line in, in situations where Harry is kind of like lying down mm-hmm. or kind of just looking really kind of sad and lonely and it's just impossible for me not to identify like just feels like I know she's not talking about him but that that sentiment applies to him oh yeah like because he doesn't seem to know anybody in the film you know we certainly don't have any sense if his parents are alive or dead but you just feel like this is a person who needs some mothering very badly <laughs> a maternal kind of guidance uh, or, or support or something. I just think that some of the ways that those lines of dialogue are used in specific contexts that can also apply to Harry. Yeah. It kind of breaks your heart. No, I was thinking about the same thing. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it, it just sad. At the end of that scene, we see him get kind of like put to bed while he's sort of disassociating <laughs> while listening yet again, a little bit drunk, we assume, yeah. at this point in the evening to the tapes. And this kind of interloper 
Meredith um, is there kind of like putting him down, mm-hmm. you know, pulling the blanket on him. And that's exactly the part of the tape that we hear over those images. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. the idea of someone laying on a park bench is sort of superimposed on this image of Harry, yeah. like lying down on the <laughs> office yeah. mattress, question mark. What is that? <laughs> I'm sure that's spacey. I, was, I remember pausing it and being like, why is there a bed in here? But that's fine. <laughs> well, my sense was that he just worked all the time. And then when he got really tired, crashed in the bed and then got back to work. It's really narratively convenient yeah. for his unfortunate seduction by Meredith. Yeah. It's great. And then, of course, when he drifts off, that's when he has the dream sequence that we've been alluding to. Exactly. I think we did that very linearly there. We tried. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> did you want to talk about that opening shot at all? I mean, that's kind of the iconic thing that everybody knows about it. Sure. Well, something I would like to say about it is, so the cinematographer that's credited for the film is Bill Butler. Yeah. It was originally supposed to be Haskell Wexler. Yeah. Who shot Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and In the Heat of the Night. Yeah, I met him like many years ago. Oh, did you? I did, yeah. He came into Scarecrow Video when we were working, uh, when I was working there many years ago. um, And I did not know him. Yeah, how did you know it was him? Well, no, I mean, he didn't come in, like, just as a customer. He, oh. they, the, the store was bringing him in to, like, give a talk about something or something. I see. Okay. But, yeah, I, and I just wish I knew how iconic and, and amazing the cinematography was at that moment because I didn't. I was just like, oh, cool, a cinematographer's here. But, yeah, you were going to say he, he was originally the cinematographer on this film. Yeah, Wexler shot the Union Square scene. Yeah. So everything else was reshot. But it's him who did that for kind of, like, you know, shot that's become sort of synonymous with the cinematography of the film. So that's really interesting. And then... Also, weirdly, Bill Butler replaced Wexler again for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. So there's some really bizarre pinch hittery going on between the two of them. And I also want to say that Bill Butler is still alive and he's 101 years old. It was crazy. It's totally crazy. It doesn't even have a picture on his Wikipedia page. I know. I saw one from like in his mid 90s on a YouTube video mm. and I was like, mm, still looks pretty good, to be honest. Like yeah. still pretty with it. You know? yeah, good for him. Good for him. But so the Union Square shot. Yeah, we start with this like overhead, like bird's eye view shot and it very, very slowly um, moves in and sort of picks out from an ant-like proportion, these two people who are walking around who are the subject of the surveillance that sort Mm -hmm. of kicks off all the drama in the film. And I think people pay attention to that so much or remember it because of that dynamism from the really wide to the really tight. Mm -hmm. We see throughout the film flashes of close-ups that bring us back to that moment of Not just intimacy, but to go back to this idea of surveillance, like it's a one-sided intimacy, Mm -hmm. you know, like they think they're having a private moment, but the film viewer is pulled in complicit with this unearned proximity to what's transpiring between them. Hmm. That being said, that proximity is also misleading because as we learn throughout the film, you can analyze and analyze and analyze and replay and still be completely wrong about what it is that you're hearing. Completely wrong. So there's a kind of futility to that proximity that I think is fascinating, that it's deceptively close. I love that. You know, it does introduce pretty much everything you need to know about the entire movie Mm -hmm. throughout those first, you know, five, six, seven minutes, including how good he is at his job, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the kind of the setup and all this stuff. And also just that this was legal back then, Mm -hmm. you know, which is crazy. Like he could be above the board surveillance expert. 
But it even gives you those little glimpses as you get a little bit more into the scene of like, they have a van that's like a mirror yes. shop or something. And then, you know, John Cazal, who I love and we should talk more about, is you know, taking pictures. Isn't it him that's take, like taking pictures of these girls that are putting their faces up to like do their lipstick in their mirror? Yeah, they're just using the reflection of the van window to apply lipstick. Yeah, and he's doing this kind of pervy, um, you know. Yeah, like, creepy. Show me some tongue kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of over. And, and again, right away, Harry, you just you get the sense that Harry's super uncomfortable with that and just, you know, shuts it down. Yeah. Out of what you probably think is some work stuff, there's probably some guilt or repression going on there too. Well, he has a code. I mean, that's something that we learned that's totally tied to his Catholicism about mm. taking the Lord's name in vain. And Yeah, there is that. You know, he definitely like operates by a kind of code, or at least I think likes to imagine that if he's doing that, it means that he's living a moral life. Yes. Even if there are, as we learn, these like really, really big background plot events that would suggest that the degree to which he is living a moral life is really compromised by what it is he actually does for a living and yeah. what he's good at. Yeah, I was trying to think of a case in which a surveillance expert would be hired to tape something benign or <laughs> pretty much his entire job would. I mean, people that want to be surveilling people are usually not looking for positive information to surprise someone with on their birthday or something, you know. Yeah, that's a really sweet idea, though. I love that rejected conversation <laughs> script i'm gonna start ha happy surveillance yeah <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about bill butler about wexler we also have to talk about walter merch for sure walter merch the supervising editor and sound montage and re-recording artist for this film was at usc film school in the mid 60s that's where he befriended george lucas came on to american zoetrope in 1969 and he's only directed one film yes. in addition to all this sound work, which was 1985's Return <laughs> to Oz, which you said scared you. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you, have you seen that movie? You know, I think I saw it years ago when I first encountered Feruza Balk through the craft. Oh, yeah, sure. And I was like, what else has she done? Oh, yeah. And, and came to Return to Oz that way. But it didn't make a big impression on me as it did for you, I think. I think you have to watch it as a pretty, I mean, I was seven, eight years old and often talk about, wasn't allowed to watch a lot of stuff unless it was PG or less. Right, uh, right, right, So, right, you know, right. I, we, we were thinking return, you know, return to Oz, what can be wrong with that? Or maybe my parents were thinking that. I remember we had a piece on it on the site years ago and a lot of the responses on social media stuff was how many people were just like terrified or traumatized by this film. Wow. Uh, it was something about like that there's a scene where there's like a hall of disembodied heads that are doing all, I mean I, I can't even talk about it being like just like oh yeah I just remember being just terrified of uh, it's very dark for a, a kid's family movie it would have been a bad choice well it was so dark that Merch never directed another film yeah oh my god I find that anecdote to be quite sad yeah I think there's a way in which people who work in film there's this kind of well, the apex would be directing mm -hmm. directing your own thing and yeah. being in that kind of seat of control the idea that he got to do that once, that it went pretty poorly, yeah. meaning it was this kind of box office failure, I mean. Yeah. And then he just never did it again. <laughs> it's just But sad. do we know why he didn't? I'm, I'm sure there's a story. Because I mean, it could have been he didn't like the experience, too. I mean, I don't... Yeah, I suppose so. For some of his non-directorial work, it was, you know, so amazing. And Coppola talks about, you know, gives him a lot of credit for how, for the conversation and how it all came together because we haven't mentioned it. Coppola was basically shooting The Godfather 2. Mm -hmm. This is the movie he made in between two 
iconic, huge American movies. Mm-hmm. And he, he left a lot of the editing and construction of all that stuff to, to Merch. And Merch was the one who did that audio switch that changed the whole context of everything. Right. So a lot of the stuff that we might associate with Coppola, a lot of that stuff is actually Walter Merch. Mm-hmm. So just thinking of how someone with that kind of a background would only be allowed one chance in a movie ever, that, that part doesn't make as much sense. Hopefully it's that he chose not to and not that he didn't get to. Yeah. I'm going to look into that later. Yeah, do. Fine. <laughs> I mean, his interviews are always fascinating. He's so smart, uh, so just intelligent as an artist and an editor. Mm-hmm. And reading through some of his books, you can kind of open them at any any point and just find a pretty fascinating pull quote. And so I just really like to hear the way his mind works. Yeah, I think not all artists or maybe most artists aren't necessarily equally talented at commenting on the nature of their work. That's very true. And to flip through Merch's book in the blink of an eye and see the way that he not only was able to sort of understand and execute his craft, but also theorize it for an Mm -hmm. audience and sort of allow film viewers and technicians to get a better sense of the ins and outs of what it is that he does. I just think that that is really rare and extremely I'd totally say. special and makes him a great interviewee also yeah he doesn't evangelize it but he, he makes you want to study film more i guess it would be that same kind of connection when i read him i was like i want to be as smart as him about all this kind of stuff <laughs> Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just I just really enjoy uh, most of the things that I've come across from him. Did you want to say anything? I mean, was he responsible for the sound as well as the editing or the... Yeah, he was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his contribution. I mean, it feels like his fingerprints, it's such a cliche, but are all over the film. And as you said, mm-hmm. um, Coppola was justifiably distracted at the time even though this is and I think this is hard to understand in a way from a contemporary perspective but like Coppola's personal project after 1972's The Godfather which we think of I think most of us as you know this like masterpiece or whatever Mm -hmm. this like career making project which is not not true but was this huge like drawn out gamble from the studio perspective where it was this distended project. They were like, don't put Marlon Brando in it. You know, like, where is this going? We don't like the footage that we've seen. So the Godfather was seemed like it was just this ungainly mess until it was a huge success, which I think from a creative standpoint is also kind of heartening (laughs) 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 to think like, no, like just stick with it. (laughs) Like if the vision is you two can make the Godfather. Yeah, like trust the process and the Godfather is what happens. Yeah. Yeah, but as a result, it really is like we cannot say enough about the contributions and the kind of shaping hand of Walter Murch in terms of what the conversation is remembered for. That being said, there's also, I mean, so much going on with the cinematography and the mise-en-scene of this film Mm -hmm. that in repeat viewings, once you know the kind of plot twist that the film hinges on. Yeah really sustains my attention Mm -hmm. and two of the things that I find myself really keyed into when I watch it more recently and including this morning (laughs) (laughs) one is the way the cinematographic movement emulates the surveillance style of Mm -hmm. a CCTV camera right yeah absolutely yeah this kind of fixed position we see this right when we're introduced to the space of Harry Call's apartment The camera's in a fixed position and it kind of rotates like a turning head. And not only does it remind us of a CCTV camera, but it reminds us of a head, (laughs) like of a human head. Oh, yeah. Of a human head, of the way that that eyes move. 
Yeah. You know, and I think that that's so great and takes me back to this quote that Merch gives in his book on editing, where he says, quote, if the guide, that is to say the editor, doesn't have the confidence to let people themselves occasionally choose what they want to look at or to leave things to their imagination, then he is pursuing a goal, complete control, Mm. that in the end is self-defeating. And there is this kind of equation or analogy of human vision to the mechanical vision that we think of when we think of surveillance. And Mm -hmm. that's so interesting to me how that kind of proceeds via the camera movement in the film. And we see it at the end, too, when Harry calls, kind of tearing up his apartment looking for the bug. Well, and the the beginning, too, uh, you know, allowing the characters to walk in and out of the frame. Like, you'll hear the conversation, but all of a sudden you just... You know, some musical player, they'll walk behind people and they'll be out of the frame. Mm-hmm. That it's a very neutral, uh, intentionally neutral camera in, in a lot of ways, where it's just like kind of observing. And then it almost becomes more human <laughs> as it starts paying attention. But it's always a little bit behind what's happening, like in those turn of the head moments. Well, it is neutral seeming, but then I think... At first. Right. Yeah. Like what we end up thinking about is the degree to which observation is not neutral. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. It is sort of directed and selective and judgmental Mm -hmm. and analytical as Harry's sort of processing of the audio develops over the course of the film. The other thing that I think a lot about is a kind of motif in the mise-en-scene, which is of screens and scrims Mm. and kind of filters or veils. Interesting. I think we see this in everything from like Harry Call's ridiculous transparent raincoat (laughs) to this like plastic sheeting that's hanging from the ceiling in his office space that he Mm -hmm. kind of passes behind in and out of turning into a kind of silhouette of himself something that's visible but blurry and we also see it in the plastic partitions that separate the balconies in the hotel Mm -hmm. in the film's sort of final kind of action sequence where the blood is kind of smeared on some shower curtain or something texture oh no yeah it's a glass yeah Yeah, but also the shower curtain we see that too okay so there's a lot of these kinds of semi-opaque textures Mm -hmm. and for me what this does is kind of hammer home this idea of perception but with obstruction yeah so that we can see something but it's never entirely transparent to us yeah and that kind of tension between what we can see and how we make it out just is what the film is about to me and i love Mm -hmm. seeing that play out in such a concrete visual sense you know i hadn't noticed the visual aspect of that yeah because that's exactly true of the plot i mean we're purposely kept pretty much in the dark about the larger story Mm. in terms of what's actually going on like you know none of those people as far as i know are have names maybe they said maybe they have names i'm sure they have names but i couldn't tell you what the characters names are at other than harry call in this world that he's observing Oh, okay the company or the bill i don't even know what like you know, we haven't mentioned Robert Duvall's in this, and he's a big important person in some world, but I don't know the world. And so I, I always thought, definitely as an undergrad, and then subsequent rewatches until I read it was constructed this way, I always just thought I was not keeping up with the plot. I was like, come on, pay attention, Chad. Mm. There, there's got to be somewhere in here where they explain who these people are and what all this is. But then Coppola had said no. He, he wanted to keep that purposely obscured mm. so that once so that we were in the dark the way Harry was and things could be revealed over time in a good narrative way. But also, back to the boring thing, he was worried that we would get way more invested in these characters and their interesting story and would lose interest in the non-dynamic Harry. So it's serving a couple of different functions. Yeah, there is something kind of anonymous and interchangeable 
about the people that hire Harry to do this job in the first place, which is, as you said, Robert Duvall, who plays the director. That's how he's credited. Yeah, Harrison Ford is in here. We haven't even talked about the very young Harrison Ford. Yeah, a very hot young Harrison Ford <laughs> playing Martin Stett, Robert Duvall's um, assistant. Having very little to do, but still being just nice to see. Yeah, oh, so nice to see. Yeah, at the end of the film when he's wearing that like white knit sweater collared sweater with black piping i mean we gotta bring that back i love how you always notice all that stuff yeah we gotta bring back the light summertime knit yes for men with shoulders i just it's really shoulderless men do not need that yeah no if you don't have shoulders don't do it but if you do get on board Yeah, it's interesting to see these kind of really famous actors in not unimportant roles, certainly, but definitely minimized by the film, as you're saying, and the details are withheld. Terry Garr? Yeah, Terry Garr barely in the film playing Amy, Harry's girlfriend, who seems like she's just kind of a plant in a room. Like, does she leave? Does she do anything? And she just waits for him to visit her. (laughs) Again, we just, we don't get a lot of things that would normally connect us to Harry's interior or life or world. Yeah, it's very self-protected. I can't understand his relationships with most of the people in the film. Neither can he. Yeah, neither can he. And and also socially, yeah, the the times he does try to engage in in normal ways, it, it doesn't seem normal as he's doing the engaging, you know. Mm-hmm. just seems very wounded throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And not just from the trauma of what had happened at a previous work assignment, but also as he reveals in that dream sequence, it's a line that could be interpreted lots of different ways, but you know the way he interprets it, where he punched somebody in the stomach and then they died a year later. Right, when he's doing all these weird non sequiturs in the dream sequence. Yeah, and you think about that and you're like, well, if it was from the punch, the person probably would have would have died, you know, from being punched. So someone could die for very unrelated reasons a year later, but he had, he clearly connected those in his mind as like... It's magical thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah, magical thinking of the worst kind of like, I'm responsible for this. And that kind of shows yeah. you like that this characterological kind of architecture that he has has been present since he was a little kid. Yeah. Which then, for me, ties back into the, this was when someone's little boy and had a mother and father mm-hmm. who loved mm-hmm. him and mm-hmm. where are all the uncles now and all that kind of stuff. Oh, where are the uncles now? Yeah. Yeah, that whole monologue that he does in the dream sequence does feel like a confession yeah is it not exactly of him sort of like unspooling these weird seemingly random but obviously connected in his mind kind of memories and he says something at the end of that speech which i thought a lot about because i think this is a film about in some ways really fine distinctions Mm -hmm. like that between he'd kill us if he had the chance and he'd kill us if he had the chance. Yeah. He says, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of murder. Yeah. It reminded me of something that Harrison Ford's Martin Stett says when Harry realizes that he's sort of tailing him at the professional conference. He says something like, Mm -hmm. I'm not following you. I'm watching you or something like that. Right. Where, I'm not sure if that's exactly it, but it's just another moment of the film being really interested in these very fine distinctions that seem kind of semantic. But then we come to understand, based on the film's primary plot, just how important semantics are in terms of determining like courses of action that are completely, completely different adjudicating those distinctions feels like something that the film makes a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about the music? It's pretty 
fun, right? I was just about to bring that same thing. Yeah, it's uh, it ties in with everything else in the movie, the way that you're just like everything kind of echoes everything else. It's this, there's so much of this little repetitive riff running throughout the thing and uh, lots of repetition, but also lots of variations on that repetition. Also, there's creepiness to it. We should mention, I guess, David Shire, who was the guy who had written the music. Mm-hmm. I feel like I read somewhere in the last week that he had actually written the music before the film was shot. That's right. So that's also fascinating to think about how they use that as not, hey, watch the film and write some music around it, yeah. which is the more traditional process. But, hey, we're, we're going to take your music and put it into these things and basically build it into some of, of the story and the shots. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of what we were talking about last month long ago yeah so long ago (laughs) last week with i am love and the idea of this like pre-existing composition yeah and how important it feels to the sort of rhythm and the textures of feeling in the film itself Mm -hmm. and here too that kind of like plinky if there's a sound equivalent to the phrase that you used earlier a ruminative spiral i feel like that's it mm-hmm. that kind of like uh rising and falling melody that just repeats and repeats and repeats yeah. and feels like it goes nowhere doesn't resolve it does not resolve <laughs> yeah 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 musically it's just fascinating too yeah and again that that just idea of how on a craft level how everything is so well made here i know that's a not a poignant observation it's just i I do think that that does something to a viewer like where you just feel like you're in you can relax as a viewer because a story is going to be told to you Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're going to do what they need what it needs to do just the parceling out of information and the the musical motifs and the visual motifs and the camera work and the editing and the repetition of all of these things which then just kind of amplifies the repetition in the story and maybe you could even say like you know i would guess that harry's mind works on a very continuous loop and and certainly Mm. we see that obsessive behavior played out in various ways throughout the film so just how everything works with everything else in kind of a a symphony of paranoia (laughs) so if you find this so harmonious and unified is it your favorite coppola film you know what? I At the time I saw it, yeah, uh, for sure. I've seen a lot more since then. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, a big, big, uh, and I haven't rewatched it in 20 years, so I, I'll have to revisit it soon to see if it holds up. But I'm just a big Godfather 2 person. I, I used to go to the mat for that movie, um, and I think it's better than the first one. And by the way, was not, wasn't it? Godfather 2 and The Conversation were both nominated for Best best Picture in the same year, I think. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's one of the few. And what different films in so many ways. I forgot what your question was. It was, is this your favorite Coppola film? Oh, and yeah. No, no. Godfather no. 2 is clearly your favorite. Uh, well, Godfather 2, probably. I, this might be it. I mean, this one, I, I can at least say since I just watched it again, um, still holds up to and gives me the same kind of effects and, and enjoyment as it did all those years ago. The Godfather 2, I haven't rewatched in so long. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I imagine that still holds up. I haven't heard any hot takes that <laughs> The Godfather 2 is secretly trash or anything. But yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Coppola's career is fascinating too. And I'm, you know, I, I came very late in my life to uh, Apocalypse Now, like well after I should have seen it as a, as a film studies major. Just saw it maybe five or six years ago. And, and I thought that was fantastic too. Another, another hot take that Apocalypse Now is pretty good. But this streak that he was on here is just fascinating where he makes Godfather 1, The Conversation, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, like four films in a row in like seven or eight years. And then I I love, I mean, I have a real fondness for One from the Heart, which he made after Apocalypse Now Mm -hmm. to bring, I think, Terry Garr back into it. But yeah, that's nice. It's a fascinating film. Uh, Visually just 
really wonderful. And then The Outsiders. And you just look at, you know, for me, that was something that I grew up with watching a lot, too. So sure. Career launching. That streak from The Godfather to Outsiders, that's that's like a 10-year stretch where there's not a, in my mind, not a bad movie. Some people Mm -hmm. don't like one from the heart. But yeah, and then then to see where his career has and hasn't gone since then, too. But what what a masterful just run of movies. For me, it's got to be Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, yeah. I hadn't gotten up to the 90s yet. But yes, call back to the Eyes Wide Shut episode. Whatever it was right after I had just seen it. Yeah. I just think that it's an incredibly moving, lurid, weirdly sexy, super theatrical, Mm -hmm. and just indulgent in all the best ways film. And because of that, I just think the range from that to the conversation is totally fascinating. Yeah. You know, I mean, typically when we think about tourism, we think of this kind of discernible signature Mm -hmm. that a filmmaker has, even if it's not the director, I would say, I love to think about a tourism on the level of cinematographer or Hmm. relationships with the editor or writers or whatever, but with Coppola, the range is crazy. Yeah. And the conversation is such a tight film where everything, as you said, is kind of purposeful and working in concert and there aren't additional elements and even a lack of resolution is itself a kind of like primary element of the film but there aren't individual aspects that are left unresolved Mm -hmm. or kind of dangling whereas Dracula it's all dangling like it's just like this love letter to excess in every way and camp and And operatic yeah like it's really and so it's not surprising considering my personal taste that that's what I sort of gravitate to more Um, and also I think it's like an incredible love story but the conversation I just I love thinking about the aesthetic discrepancy between films Mm. that belong to the same kind of incredible career I mean, the conversation far more so than Dracula, obviously, but yeah. even that too, not necessarily in the top three films that I think Coppola is like totally known for, which I would think are more The Godfather, The Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, sure. I think I think people tend to think of 70s Coppola first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, that film is great. The Bram Stoker's Dracula, but maybe my second favorite film, this is a joke, by the way, is the movie he made that followed up Dracula. Do you know what movie that is? No. Seriously, one of the worst movies I've maybe ever seen. What is it? Jack? No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, you do not need to unless you want to be amazed that that was the follow-up film. I'm not a completist, <laughs> so it's okay. Yeah, I tend to be very completist. Do you even know the film? Like, it's Robin Williams playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know because it drew a lot of comparisons to Big when it came out. Yeah, not, yeah, not, Big is a great film. Okay. This one, oh my. I don't even know how to describe how all the various ways it didn't work. Save it um, for another episode. But anyway, so yeah, he had he had some flops, but he also has done mainstream stuff like, you know, I remember seeing The Rainmaker when Matt Damon was just becoming a, a guy uh, on the scene, so to speak. Peggy Sue Got Married, I remember seeing. Love Peggy Sue Got Married, but that's taking us into my Nicolas Cage fixation. So. <laughs> yes, we'll stay away from there. I also really uh, have a fondness for Tucker the Man and his uh, dream. I don't actually remember the film very much. I remember how it looked and it, it just looked so great. I still have those mem- images in my head. <laughs> Late 80s Francis Ford Coppola is not a big uh, podcast discussion turf, so we can move We can move Maybe on. Maybe it would be a good issue theme. <laughs> yes. Very specific. Oh, we, I just feel like it's not possible that we cut through a whole... We kept alluding to the final scene, but just the, the saxophone or the jazz of stuff, too. It seems like the one thing that gives him comfort is playing the saxophone. In my mind, that, that final scene, when he's 
doing that, it's just like he's totally given up and he's just doing the one kind of like thing that brings him like any kind of pleasure left. But it's also really sad and haunting. Mm-hmm. He's just like giving up and going to his comfort. His binky is his saxophone. So. His binky. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but also just the music, like playing along with that, plus the radio, plus the score underneath. That. Don't you find it really sad that if earlier this moment of vulnerability that he has with Meredith is what ultimately, I don't want to say leads to his downfall because that's sort of out of his control, but at least leads to the abduction of the tapes that he's trying to protect at that time. At the end of the film too, he's playing his tenor sax, I think I read that it is. Mm -hmm. And the bug is clearly in the saxophone. And it once again is like his sort of allowing himself to experience something outside of work and a constant kind of vigilance against surveillance is precisely what gets him screwed once again. Is the bug actually in the saxophone? I mean, I don't know where else it could be. (laughs) I always kind of understood that the bug is in the sax and that that's why, well, I guess we don't really know definitively if he's still being listened to at the end of the film. Oh yeah, I think he is. And maybe the point is just the sort of deconstruction of the apartment and how he stripped everything back. Mm -hmm. But there's a final kind of cruelty or something to the idea that this one little bit of like pleasurable hobby that he has, this bit of escapism or creative expression or whatever you want to say about it, is sort of the vehicle for an outcome that he wants to prevent at all costs. Yeah. Like he just can't be protective enough. And no one can. That's the universality of it that is, is yeah, is so relatable. Um, we don't know how he handled the, the past job mm. when he did the, the infamous surveilling people on a boat mm. that possibly led to some murders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but with this one, we see him working so hard with best intentions to try and, you know, with whatever available information he has to try and stop something bad from happening like he, he's on a quest for what he would say is you know heroic he's trying to save somebody from this and save himself from having to go through the experience of knowing he's responsible again mm-hmm. and he takes every possible step that you know as a surveillance guy and as a fairly intelligent person but he just doesn't understand what's happening which is you know analogous for most of how we go through life where we just have our little context and we don't have the wider story Mm -hmm. so any best intentions we're making can still end up not going well because we don't know we don't know that what we don't know Mm -hmm. so i just think it was uh very relatable in in that sense we live in a random universe we can't control things you know which is (laughs) his worst case scenario came true through his best intentions and then he ends back up in that room i think there's nothing more catholic than the idea of we don't know what we don't know yeah it feels completely fitting that um by the end of the film he's caught up in forces beyond his control a thing that he seems able to resolve himself with in this spiritual way Mm -hmm. but unable to sort of concede to in a more material way yeah that is maybe like the most clear through line of catholicism to me in the (laughs) film much more so than the idea of surveillance and confession but just yeah the sort of compulsory lack of control that he finds himself experiencing by the end as we mentioned earlier, that that last shot is is just haunting as, as as the credits roll on the screen, and he's he's just playing that saxophone in a totally totally torn up, ruined apartment, which I imagine will have some consequences to it. Not getting his security deposit back. Yeah, no security deposit back for Harry Call. Yeah, even that name is just sounds so tight and restricted. 
it's not a happy ending, but it's, it makes sense for that to be the ending of this type of film. But it's also just really just kind of haunting and sad. In terms of what he was going for, at least there was this uh, uh, magazine called Filmmakers Newsletter in the 70s, and they had an interview with Brian De Palma was interviewing Coppola specifically about the conversation. And it's a fascinating thing that we can try to put a link to. But he in there, one of the things that, that Coppola said was, I, I would think that Harry's greatest thing was to be a great jazz soloist and play at some big jazz festival. That That's his secret wish, which is sad and heartbreaking to me to hear because <laughs> It's so far from where he ends up playing, not at a big jazz festival, but in his torn up apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so De Palma just asked him at one point, you know, what's really bothering Harry? What's the source of his deepest wounds? The thing that he's really trying to get at when he's tearing up the room and tearing himself up. And Coppola says a few things about not thinking he's totally succeeded, but to have an image of dismantling, like a repeated image. He mentions that they're tearing a building down on his block there. They're, you know, they're stripping this building. And he says, later in the film, we see all the rooms are bare, which to me is an eavesdropping image seen through the walls of buildings. And he says, at the end, I wanted, of course, the premise that the best wiretapper in the world has been tapped by someone better. The tearing down of the room to kind of be synonymous with a kind of personal tearing down in order to try to come back more to what his roots were as a man. And then De Palma asks, what are his roots? What is it he's even trying to get at? And Coppola just says, I think his roots are roots of guilt. Ever since he was a little kid, everything that has happened, he has in some way been responsible. So that's what he was going for at the ending. I don't know if that's what we get from the ending. I don't, or what you think of hearing him. I mean, that, that was him in 1974, fresh off of making it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What, what do you think about where the film leaves him as a way of kind of wrapping up this talk? Well, I think that that all sounds true to the Harry Cole character. But what we learn is that nothing that's happened to him is because of what he's done. <laughs> mm. Like he thinks it is though. Yeah, he thinks it is. I yeah, I understand, but I am saying like in accordance with my previous point, like I think he's basically in the position that Anne and Mark are in in the opening shot of Union Square, which is like small mm. and watched from above mm-hmm. and manipulated by forces that they don't even perceive, yeah. let alone have a hand in controlling Mm. the fact that Martin Stett intervenes on Harry at the end of the film through the black telephone. It's like a voice of God moment for me. That's true. You know, he's saying like, stop what you're doing, leave it. We're watching you. And then plays back some of his sax playing as proof that they have a bug in the apartment that he then spends the end of the film searching for Mm -hmm. to no avail. Seemingly while he might really hold tight to this idea that he's responsible for things, I think as painful as that probably is for the Harry Cole character, there's also some satisfaction to the idea that you have the power to exert control mm. over what's going on in your life and that that is in fact not true or not <laughs> entirely true. And that that's what the ending sort of suggests to us, which is clearly different from the sort of takeaway that Harry Cole has at the end of the film for himself as a character. Yeah. I think that's probably a wrap on the conversation. Do you think we got where we needed to get? (laughs) Yeah, totally. We got to the end of the film, which is where we were trying to go. (laughs) Yeah, and also I think what we started with, so. (laughs) Last hairy call. (laughs) Okay, so typically we end every episode by asking our guests, 
which we don't have any, to share the last thing they watched recently and then a quick staff recommendation. We're going to do that ourselves this week. Mm-hmm. So, Chad, I'm curious what's been on your docket. What's the last thing that you watched-ish and what's your staff reco for July? Yeah, so the, the last movie that I actually saw, I know Veronica and I have talked a little bit about already because she was very instrumental in getting me to go see it. And we talked about it on the last podcast too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did go and see Top Gun Maverick in a movie theater with my son. It was fantastic both as an experience uh him and i went to lots of movies um when he was younger and before the pandemic Mm. but you know i like some of these movies but they were mostly kids and family movies Mm. so now that he's kind of of the age when he can see something like top gun so i took him and we just sat there on a on a sunday matinee and watched top gun maverick in a theater which was itself great because i hadn't done that with a sizable crowd and since early 2020 and and the movie was fantastic it was phenomenal i mean and, and i am not the target audience for for that type of film at all and uh, just came away just being like so glad that movies exist and so glad that I saw something like that on a big screen. I, we, we watched uh, Top Gun the night before because my son hadn't seen that one yet. Mm-hmm. So to watch those two in a 24-hour period, it was. I know there's a lot of talk about how the sequel's better, but I would say it's unequivocally better in almost every way. Like I loved the first one as a kid, but I think I would have loved this one as a kid and my my kid did love it, but also uh, I loved it as an adult, and and that wasn't quite the case with the original Top Gun. I, I could see, mm. I felt a lot of the nostalgia from the first one rewatching it, but there was also just like, yeah, this is not good, good. This is like entertaining, and I can see why it was a big deal in the 80s. But this one just was just filmmaking, and I just loved it, and I was just so drawn into it. You know, not that Tony Scott was not a filmmaker. I mean, he was a great filmmaker, obviously. Both literally films, but okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, I always say some version of like the, the difference in pronunciation on you know filmmaking versus filmmaking or movies versus <laughs> movies it was so narratively satisfying uh some of the father and son stuff was so um poignant i mean just through the, the one thing that always kind of haunted me in my memories of top gun was i, I remembered certain points but i mainly remembered that goose died mm-hmm. uh in top gun so sorry for the 40 year later spoiler alert but goose dies in the first one <laughs> So to bring back his son, to have Miles Teller look like creepily like him with that little mustache and everything, to recreate some of the scenes like the the Great Balls of Fire piano scene, but the way they used flashbacks, but not in a way that made you kind of like cringe. They incorporated all of the stuff so you wouldn't even really need to see the first one. And it was just so poignant. And then to, to Veronica's point that she had said, but just about the the, the passing of time and the, the, the journey of Tom Cruise, both his visage and his body, his hair, just everything, just how he's changed, how time has changed him or this character. And, you know, obviously the Val Kilmer scene could have gone wrong in a thousand ways. And I thought that was so well handled, uh, was, you know, tearing up a little bit, um, mm. knowing, knowing the backstory of what Val Kilmer is going through. And, so I just thought it was so deeply narratively satisfying and did its job also as a Hollywood blockbuster just really, really well. I mean, I was really invested in the story mm-hmm. and really invested in this thing that I knew from the beginning probably where it was going to end up. But I, I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And thank you for urging me to go see it. My pleasure. I'm happy to be a cruise evangelist yeah. whenever possible. Yeah. And I, I, I like him in general. I mean, I, I, I'm not uh, anti-Tom Cruise. I, I, I like him actually quite a lot in most of the movies he's in. But this, yeah, this was just different. And the Mission Impossible, the next Mission Impossible trailer played before. Oh, that made me cry. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> and my favorite part of the whole trailer was when it says the name of it and it says part one. And I was like, oh, that's, we're guaranteed another 
I mean, Tom Cruise turns 60 next year. That means he's going to be making I love that. Uh, making that movie in, as a 60-year-old, that's that second part. Um, so, yeah, to have another new Mission Impossible thing on the way, I'm super excited about that. The bummer being that it's, you know, July 2023 when we get to see that. But, well, we'll have to do an all-Mission Impossible issue. Yeah. There's probably enough films to do that, right? Definitely. We could probably do something like that. Yeah. If every essay is 4,000 words, it'll be absolutely <laughs> perfect. Okay. You know? Sounds good. And what's your staff recommendation? For my staff recommendation, I've been really thinking a lot about in the last few weeks. Well, actually going back to the Paul Newman issue, when I was trying to write on the verdict, I didn't actually get around to being able to, to pull that one all the way together. So we'll hopefully be able to do that later. But I've been thinking a lot about Sidney Lumet and just how, at least in the online, you know, discourse, he's not brought up much as kind of a master. Mm. People respect him. People say he worked well with actors. But I just love his movies and it's he's one of those filmmakers that just works across all all types of genres and does all types of things but every movie that i see of his i either love or i find things to love about it and so my my recommendation is one that i've mentioned over the years is is something that not a lot of people have seen it's called running on empty Mm -hmm. it's a 19 i think 88 film it's got river phoenix uh judd hirsch Christine Lady, Lighty? I don't know how to say her name. I think it's Lady. Okay. No, Lottie. Lottie. Lottie? Okay. Right? Christine Lottie? I don't know. I try not to say it out loud because I have no idea. I feel like I, <laughs> I'm hearing old, like, award announcements okay. or something. I think it's Christine Lottie. And Martha Plimpton. Love Martha Plimpton. I had a conversation on the site, geez, years ago now, probably five, six, seven years ago. Uh, with uh, film critic Sheila O'Malley. Um, she's mm. a big fan of Running an Empty 2. Cool. So we just did like an email kind of back and forth conversation that we turned into an article on the site. Cool. Just talking a lot about it, but it's a fascinating film about, ha- have you seen that movie? I don't want to. I think I have. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just the really quick thing is just, uh, it's a family on the run because the parents had tried to bomb something in protest of the war in the 70s. They didn't think someone would be there, but like a janitor was inadvertently killed. So then they're on the FBI wanted list. So they go on the run but then have two young boys who they're raising. So when we pick up with the film, you know, River Phoenix is a teenager, mm-hmm. musician trying to, you know, he plays piano as much as he can in their on-the-run life. They have to change identities all the time. But it's kind of about him finding landing in a place as a teenager where he feels connected to the first time, you know, mm-hmm. with, with some of his classmates. He falls in love with Martha Plimpton. But it's just this great family drama. There's so much dramatic tension just kind of all over the place. He tries to get into Juilliard. Uh, so there's a, a few shots at, at Juilliard. I love that genre. Auditioning for Juilliard. <laughs> Auditioning for Juilliard drum. Yeah. It's got great music, a uh, great score, um, and a, an iconic scene, at least in my world, of the family and Martha Plimpton dancing around the house very kind of joyously to, to James Taylor's Fire and Rain, which just brings up tears for me uh, every time that I, that I see that scene. It's fantastic. So... Mostly recommending it because it's great, but secondarily because I don't know that many people that have actually seen it. I think that uh, a lot of people would enjoy it. It's something you could show almost anybody and they would would say that was a great, sad movie. And the ending is just a gut punch. So mm. so that's my recommendation uh, is Running on Empty from Sydney Lumet. Great. And Veronica, what what about you? What what are your last call? What was the last thing that you saw? The last thing I saw is the most recent episode of Olivier Asayas's Irma Vep series mm. on HBO. I am obsessed with it. Really? Yeah. I am a pretty big Asayas fan, but there's something about this series that is like really relaxing (laughs) (laughs) because it's just really meta. It's juxtaposing footage from the sort of present time Mm -hmm. of a director remaking a 
film that's based itself on a silent serial in a television series, which is exactly what's happening in the uh, actual television series, huh. referring to a character that in the diegesis is named Jade Lee, but is clearly based on Maggie Chung, hmm. who was also Asias's ex. Yeah, I knew that. Part. As Lee is of the director in the series. So there's just all these kind uh, of funny... Layers. Yeah, funny layers and great kind of hotel porn. And it there's just a, a really weird tonal shiftiness to it that I'm enjoying quite a bit. So that's the sort of thing that I'm into at the moment. And then mm. the staff reco that I would give is a documentary, a kind of personal documentary, an experimental documentary made by Chick Strand in 1979 titled Soft Fiction, oh, okay. which is streaming on Criterion. It is sort of like the film analog to Lisa Tadeo. I actually have never heard yeah. her name said out loud or <laughs> had to say it myself, but her nonfiction book, Three Women, which is incredibly mm. fascinating, um, kind of long form nonfiction informed by reporting of three women's basically lives, but through the lens of their sexuality. Oh, okay. And similarly, the Chick Strand documentary is um, five women kind of a combination of direct address testimony and then some voiceover with seemingly unrelated imagery talking about sort of sexual experiences, some of which are traumatizing, some of which are pleasurable, often a kind of interesting fusion of the two. So it's this really great, the personalist political time capsule of a certain moment of testimonial women's experiences. But it also feels totally timeless and really dreamy hmm. based on the kind of imagery that you see. Dreamy. I wasn't expecting that word to come out. Yeah. yeah, I was truly disappointed when it ended, which is something that I feel like I haven't been able to say in a long time about yeah. something that I watched for the first time. So that's streaming on Criterion. It's Chick Strand's soft fiction. Oh, that sounds great. I've never even heard anything about that. So I'm going to add that to my list. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thanks, Chad. So nice to chat with you. Yeah, good to talk with you again. It's always a highlight each month, oh. or in this case, each week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and geez, uh, happy, happy travels. Oh, thank you. Can't wait to speak again when I get back. Yeah, I can't wait. August. Oh, yeah, August 1987. 1987. Will be our, our theme. So we have a whole bunch. I mean, how are we ever going to choose a movie for that one? There's way too many. I know. I can't wait. But yeah, that'll be fun. And we'll have a, have a guest on. But I do enjoy doing these these one-offs uh, with you every once in a while. So thank you. Same here. I think we did it. I think that's the conversation on the conversation. <laughs> Very nicely done. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and just as a reminder to read this month's issue on Voyeur, visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at BWDR. Please subscribe to the podcast, <laughs> share the podcast, rate the podcast highly if possible, review the podcast positively if possible. The other way to support us directly is to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. 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 <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I like that. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
uh, Ethan and I were talking sometime last month about like uh, movie ads in newspapers that we remember from as kids, like so, so well. It's just something mm. obviously my kids have no experience of. Yeah, they're like, what's a newspaper? But yeah, that was one of those ones. So like there's a whole series of movies, you know, from like the late 80s and early 90s that you guys have probably never heard of, like Hot to Trot with Bobcat Goldwaith, where he's there's a horse that can talk. And he has to like interact with the horse and it's <laughs> You said Hot to Trot was a series of movies? No, no, it was just one. Just one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Hot to Trot cinematic universe. I think I might have been the only person on the planet that was very much looking to see that movie because I think it was one of the biggest bombs ever. John Candy, Dabney Coleman, Virginia Madsen, Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> really... Oh my god. What a murderer's row. Yeah. Okay, uh, look up the Hot to Trot poster that originally came out because it just tells you everything you need to know about this movie that I was dying to see as a as a young kid. Oh my god! <laughs> what coked up executive did this? Oh my god! Don the horse. I mean, I love animal acting, so I like. I'm serious. I didn't know this a thing someone could love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bart the bear in the edge. Oh. Oh yeah. And Bart's son, also an animal actor. Like his bear, his bear son. His bear son. Yeah. <laughs> his cub. Wait, yeah. There's. A, it's a dynasty of performers. <laughs> anyway, a different episode. Well, we have our outtake. <laughs> <laughs>